Okay, hello everybody. Today is Friday. Another Anything Goes Friday. Welcome to the show. How's everybody doing? Just a couple of quick announcements and reminders before we begin. The first is that there is a new series on this channel about the New Orleans Axeman, an unidentified serial killer from the early part of the 20th century. And this series is going to be coming out every Wednesday, talking not only about the Axeman as well as some of the literature surrounding the case, but also getting into the theories and looking at the parallels between the Axeman and Jack the Ripper, as well as other serial killers who would come later on, such as the Phantom Killer of 1946 and the Zodiac Killer of the 1960s. So please tune in every Wednesday for an episode about the Axeman, and if you're listening to this in the future, you will find a playlist that has been assembled of these episodes. And I should also remind you that there will be regular segments about the Zodiac Killer coming out on Monday, and of course today is Friday, the Anything Goes Friday where any subject is fair game. And I would like to welcome you to the book discussion on Convicting Avery, The Bizarre Laws and Broken System Behind Making a Murderer by Michael D. Ciccini. This is the third book discussion that I've done about the story of Stephen Avery and the 2005 murder of Teresa Hallback. The first book discussion was on Wrecking Crew by John Farrock, the book that claims that it can demolish the case against Stephen Avery. That was done in three parts. And there is also a book discussion on Illusion of Justice by Jerry Buting, who was a former defense attorney for Stephen Avery. This story was indeed made famous by Making a Murderer, the docuseries available on Netflix. And Michael D. Ciccini really ties it together in a very interesting way. By that I mean, when I was reading Jerry Buting's book, Illusion of Justice, I really found that it wasn't so much about the Stephen Avery case as it was about his own ideas on the legal system. It's his commentary on life. He's even sharing personal anecdotes from his own life story. And I found that it was really all over the map. Not necessarily done in a bad way. I was just much more curious about his observations in the Stephen Avery case and the murder of Teresa Hallback from 2005. But with this book here, Convicting Avery by Michael D. Ciccini, he talks about a variety of different subjects. And as it says here, the bizarre laws and broken system. He gets into that material, but he stays on point in a rather interesting way. And that's just my two cents on the subject. And I would invite you to listen to my book discussion on Illusion of Justice if you're curious about the story behind Making a Murderer. Or you can even read Jerry Buting's book for yourself, available anywhere your books are sold, and put things down in the comment section. What do you think about these uh, stories, as well as your um, theories in the case? And please feel free to share anything you want in the comment section. And of course, please like and subscribe. Now, I have to turn to page 11 in the book, where... It says, Welcome to the Hellmouth. Now, why would Michael D. Ciccini write that? Well, I just wanted to share his first sentence in the book. Wisconsin criminal defense lawyers sometimes refer to our state as the Hellmouth. And he goes on to share lots of things in the book about how there are just very odd laws in the state of Wisconsin that are quite different from that of the other parts of the United States. So... That might have even been one of the reasons why there was a conviction in the Avery case for the murder of Teresa Hallback. But we should also pay close attention to the fact that 
there were two convictions. Stephen Avery, as well as his nephew Brendan Dassey, and at the time of this recording, both of them are behind bars. Just to provide a more solid introduction, I'm going to go to page 12 here in his book. One documentary, two defendants, and three jury trials. Nearly everyone who picks up this book has already seen the Netflix documentary Making a Murderer. For those who haven't put the book down and go watch it immediately, I can do better at pausing on that. For those who haven't, put the book down and go watch it immediately. Now, I do book discussions on this channel. I do ongoing podcast segments on this channel. I just said about the New Orleans Axeman. I also did a three-part series on Wrecking Crew by John Farrakh, which I cited as well. And I do not like this type of thinking. Have you ever been listening to a podcast and the host says, Okay, if you did not hear last week's episode, turn off this recording and go back and listen to part one. I don't ever want my book discussions to be like that. Yes, I invite you to listen to all the episodes in the series, but I always want them to be available as standalone episodes. I, I just have some type of personal issue with that. It's like if people want to jump into the middle of the series, I want that to be available to them as well. And um, I digress from that. Because the story of Stephen Avery doesn't begin in 2005 with the murder of Teresa Hallback. As Michael T. Giacchini states very clearly here, also on page 12, in 1985, Stephen Avery was criminally charged for the rape and beating of Penny Bernstein in Manitowoc, Wisconsin. Avery denied the allegations and had 16 alibi witnesses who placed him far away from the crime scene. The state presented no physical evidence linking Avery to the crime, yet despite all of this, Avery was convicted based solely on the word of Penny Bernstein, who identified him as the attacker. He spent 18 years in prison until he was exonerated by DNA evidence that proved beyond any doubt that the serial rapist Gregory Allen was the real perpetrator. Soon after Avery was released from prison, he filed a multi-million dollar lawsuit against the Manitowoc County Sheriff's Department. And I believe it was actually uh, $36 million. But shortly before key government agents were about to be deposed in the civil suit, Avery was again arrested and charged with multiple crimes, this time for allegedly murdering a woman named Teresa Hullback and burning her corpse. In the Hallback case, unlike the Bernstein case, the state had actual physical evidence against Avery, evidence that on its face, according to the media, appeared to prove Avery's guilt beyond all doubt. Readers will probably remember, for example, that Teresa Hallback's car key was found inside Avery's bedroom. His blood was found inside her car. Her remains were found incinerated right out outside his bedroom window, but a closer examination of the evidence revealed several problems for the state. Okay, we're going to pause right here because I want to be very clear with you guys. What I mostly do on Black Box Online Radio is I look into things that I'm curious about. And I want to approach this as, imagine Michael D. Ciccini is telling us a story, and sometimes you're going to have to say, wait a second, is that really true? So we're going to examine every statement in that exact manner or fashion, and sometimes I'm going to agree with him, sometimes I'm not, and you can do this too in the comment section, as well as looking at the possibilities of whether or not Stephen Avery was actually guilty of the crime, because sometimes I'm going to say things that would point in favor of Stephen Avery's innocence, but also there will be things to the contrary, and it doesn't actually affect what actually, 
what happened. Instead, it's just how Michael T. Ciccini is presenting the story, because this is his book here on um, convicting Avery. And I'd like to move on to the next section in the book. This is from page 20. And it talks about how Stephen Avery was convicted of the Bernstein assault, sexual assault, rather. For 18 years after Avery's conviction, this explanation seemed plausible, even probable, but we now know that Avery did not rape Bernstein. Therefore, when Bernstein described her attacker, it is incredibly unlikely that she would have described Stephen Avery, a man who was nowhere near the crime scene when she was attacked, and a man whom she probably had never even seen before. So, what happened with that? Like, why did all of that come together? There is so much of a discussion in the book about the attack on Penny Bernstein, which I have not talked about too much in the episodes that I've done on Stephen Avery here on this channel. And what I think Michael D. Ciccini really wants us to remember is Stephen Avery had 16 alibi witnesses who, said, who could vouch for his whereabouts at the time of the crime. And in retrospect, we now know that it wasn't him. You ever heard the expression that the rearview mirror is clearer than the windshield, or maybe perhaps a better one is hindsight is twenty twenty. We know that it wasn't him. So, 16 people providing alibi witnesses, that does not sound like there should have been any um, case that has been sealed beyond a reasonable doubt. That sounds like there should have been reasonable doubt. I've talked about this a lot, very frequently on the channel, when I was really quite surprised that both Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey were convicted for the murder of Teresa Hall back when there almost certainly was some form of reasonable doubt, right? But this book is about the Wisconsin legal system, the broken legal system, that is, and of course about the Averys. And there are some explanations that are provided about how reasonable doubt can be manipulated, particularly when different states have different laws. But most importantly, I think, though, that if 16 people are providing the um, eyewitness testimony, it's something to strongly consider. However, what I believe Michael DiGiacchini is sharing in the book is that Penny Bernstein identified Stephen Avery as her attacker, even though it wasn't him. A case of wrongful identification. And perhaps that really persuaded some people. But I think that um, this book really tries to make the argument that a lot of people are just leading with their emotions and their feelings, rather than looking at the possibilities, like, no, wait a second, is this actually true? So, um, I think that, um, I think that's a very simple process, but it's something that should not be completely downplayed. It's the attack on Teresa Hall, oh, excuse me, the attack on Penny Bernstein, now jumping ahead to that 2005, when there is the attack and murder on Teresa Hall back, and I'd like to go to page 35 in the book. About two years after Stephen Avery was released from prison, a young photographer named Teresa Hallback was reported missing, and just as they had done 20 years earlier in the Penny Bernstein case, the Manitowoc County Sheriff's Department made Avery their sole suspect, but this time, unlike the earlier Bernstein investigation, the sheriffs eventually produced some actual evidence, and they actually took part in an investigation. This evidence, the state claims, proved that Avery kidnapped Teresa Hallback 
murdered her, and incinerated her body just a stone's throw from his bedroom window. At the time Teresa Holbach went missing, Avery was suing the Manitowoc County Sheriff's Department for millions of dollars for his previous convictions, and because of the sheriff's obvious conflict of interest, the Holbach investigation was conducted by other law enforcement agencies. No one from the Manitowoc County Sheriff's Department was supposed to be involved in the investigation, let alone actually searching Avery's property. Yet it was the Manitowoc County Sheriff's deputies who claimed that they had found physical evidence that linked Avery to the crime. Given these highly unusual and suspicious circumstances, wouldn't Avery be able to invoke his constitutional right to privacy and to protect him from another wrongful conviction? Now, that's a very bold question, and I'm not a lawyer, and unfortunately I'm unable to answer that, but it's some big food for thought. I'll read it again. Given these highly unusual and suspicious circumstances, wouldn't Avery be able to invoke his constitutional right to privacy to protect him from another wrongful conviction? He continues by saying, In the documentary Making a Murderer, the officers from the Metatolic Sheriff's Department entered Stephen Avery's home and searched it. In fact, they did so multiple times. On their sixth entry and search, they allegedly found the key to Teresa Hallback's vehicle. The key, they claimed, was sitting on the floor in his bedroom in plain sight, yet was somehow overlooked during the first five searches. Here is a point where I will truly, truly challenge. Now, I know that these are investigators. I know that these are people who are searching for evidence, and they've been in there five times and they didn't find the key. So then the sixth time they looked, they found it. It must have been planted. I mean, it was in plain sight. They may be investigators. They may be professionals. But they are still human. They were human, and they are human now. And human beings overlook some things sometimes. Have you ever lost your car keys? Have you ever lost your wallet? Have you ever lost your cell phone? Have you ever lost something important to you? And you search your own room six times and not only are you are you looking for something simple that's in plain sight you live there you're not an outsider like these investigators it's your home and you can't always find it i mean sometimes people leave and lose something and it's in their pocket oh i can't find my phone i can't find my phone oh yeah it's in my pocket i mean we are only human i don't think there's anything weird about searching his bedroom six times and then that's when they found the key five times they didn't find it on the sixth time they found it i don't think there's anything abnormal about that because humans make mistakes i would like to jump ahead in the book to page 61 when it says the wrong person defense prosecutors and judges like to say that a criminal trial is a search for the truth and in some trials the defendant not only wants to tell the jurors that he's innocent but he also wants to explain to them who actually committed the crime and if trials are really about searching for the truth, who could possibly object to that? The Teresa Holbach case. There were plenty of other suspects in the Teresa Holbach case other than Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey. For the Teresa Holbach murder, for example, making a murderer featured court testimony from several of Avery's relatives, including two men who were contradicted by other witnesses who changed their stories from previous statements and who served as each other's alibi for the time surrounding the murder. Also, there were numerous people close to Hallback who law enforcement never even questioned, even though one of the investigators admitted that in a homicide case, 
the murderer is often the one closest or even romantically involved with the victim. But although there were multiple alternative suspects who could have murdered Teresa Hallback, defense attorney Jerry Buting expressed his concern that unless the defense could tell the jury who we think did it, the jury would be reluctant to acquit Avery. Buting also complained that the judge really had our hands tied on that. But what was Buting talking about? Of course, a defendant can assert his innocence and show the jury that he thinks he committed the crime, right? And show the jury who he thinks committed the crime, right? Very important who in there. Telling the jury who done it is not only a good strategy, after all. No one likes to leave a case unresolved, but he is also part of... Of, it is also part of our constitutional right to present a defense this way. And there is a law in the United, in the state of Wisconsin that is explored in this next session called the Denny Test. It comes from the name State versus Denny, and more or less they don't have to provide an alternative suspect. They can just simply say that somebody else murdered Teresa Hall back, and they don't have to identify who actually did. They just, there is um, what's called the Denny test, as well as the Denny rule, is as it's referred to frequently in the book. But I think what's so much more important is, for the defense teams, is, well, why don't they make their client look not guilty? I mean, I'm tempted to use the word innocent, but we're sticking to legalese, not guilty, and simply just providing an alternative that somebody else murdered Teresa Hall back, which could have very easily happened. And let's look at some of the other evidence in the case. Aside from Stephen Avery has Teresa Hallback's car key on his bedroom floor, there is also his blood in her car. Her bone remains are found on his property. And then what is really talked about in the book is that the car that Teresa Hallback was driving was a RAV4, is then relocated onto the Avery property, which had perhaps over 3,000 vehicles, Avery salvage yard. It was a salvage yard for automobiles. So, was somebody just trying to let it blend in? Well, what um, Ciccini makes in the case is that, no, absolutely not. Someone was deliberately just dumping it to throw the scent off of their own trail, leaving it on the Avery property in a way that could easily be found, mostly to confuse the authorities. He doesn't say that, but I think that that's what um, anybody who did, whoever actually murdered Teresa Hallback was trying to do that, leave something in plain sight to make the authorities think in a certain way. Even if you're entertaining a theory involving... Stephen Avery's guilt, it would have just been that, not trying to hide the car specifically, just that it was dumped near the murder site, and maybe um, as some type of distraction, but you can share what you think. But um, how on earth would his blood get in her car, and why are her bone fragments found in the burn pit on his property, as they said, a stone throw away from the window? Let's talk about this on page 93 in the book. The Two Burdens of Proof Many people are not comfortable with the concept of probability. Rather, they like to view things in black and white terms. Either something happened or it didn't. Furthermore, many people are overconfident in their ability to, to divine the truth 
of what actually happened in any given situation. But if jurors are to do their jobs in accordance with their oath, they must be a bit more sophisticated in their thinking. They must evaluate the big picture in terms of probability. For example, in the burden of proof and, in order to prevail at the trial, one must prove his or her case and say yes, its corporations are frequent flyer plaintiffs in the American court system by the preponderance of the evidence. Some people like to use that phrase, preponderance of the evidence, as meaning more likely than not, or numerical terms, 50.1% of the quantum of evidence. The quantum of evidence. There are some nice sentences and phrases and terms in this book. But I think you can get the idea, meaning that Sometimes people are going to jump to conclusions, and no matter who they are, they're going to do that. And 99% of you guys who follow Black Box Online Radio are absolutely awesome and amazing and wonderful. It's the other 1% that are just messing around. Like when somebody shows up in the comments section and they say, I have solved this decades-long true crime mystery. I know the truth and nobody else does. Well, I mean, you spent several dozen hours watching YouTube videos and maybe you read one or two books. Maybe you saw two police documents and that person, that person is going to go on and say that they've solved some decade-long murder investigation. People write this stuff into BBOR all the time because of this exact reason overconfidence in their ability to find out what the truth is and i think that um i think that Cicini is arguing that maybe the jurors have gone down the same way that they hear the story and they think oh well i know what happened therefore he must be convicted i remember when i was watching american crime story like the oj simpson one the people versus oj simpson that was actually a, a very very engaging show in retrospect i didn't think it was super good but at the time it was just done in a very um captivating way the music the sound cues it's the one where cuba gooding jr plays oj simpson but oj of course was found not guilty and the jurors are deliberating and one of them says i think he did it but what does the evidence say and that's what this book is talking about with stephen avery no matter what they think no matter if they think they have the ability to um as he says divine the truth from the falsehoods, or they can figure out what actually happened in their own mind. What does the evidence say? Is there any possibility of reasonable doubt? Or even more so than reasonable doubt, what is the interpretation of the evidence? Not somebody's gut instinct, not somebody's emotional desire, or not what somebody thinks is the best explanation. What does the evidence say? So um, I will keep reading here. In criminal cases, however, the burden of proof is much higher. The state, in order to prevail, must prove its case beyond a reasonable doubt. This higher burden of proof is justified for two reasons. First, with regard to individual defendants, this burden is needed to protect us from dubious and unjust convictions, resulting in the forfeitures of life, liberty, and property. And second, with regard to society, more generally, this burden is indispensable to command the respect and confidence of the community and applications of criminal law. In light of these concerns, therefore, it is critical that the moral force of the criminal law must not be diluted by a lower burden of proof. Despite the constitutional importance of the burden of proof, the U.S. Supreme Court's 
Supreme Court surprisingly does not require state trials to use any specific language in their jury instructions. As a result, courts across the country have struggled on how to define the phrase reasonable doubt for juries. One of the best and simplest and clearest ways to explain the concept to a criminal jury is to describe it in relative terms. In civil cases, it is only necessary to prove that a fact is more likely than not true, and that it is the highest probable. It is high, the highest probable. That's actually what it says, like the highest probability, maybe is the way I would phrase that. Or it's highly probable. As I said, there's some nice sentences in this book. But just think about that. Reasonable doubt doesn't have to be determined. But this is absolutely true. If you ever watch court shows and, like, they talk about this in a civil trial, it isn't about beyond a shadow of a doubt. It's only who has the bigger pile of evidence or what seems like it's making sense. And sometimes, like, there can be something beyond the shadow of a doubt in a civil trial. Someone is exposed and it's just a hook, line, and sinker case. However... That doesn't always happen, and more importantly, it doesn't need to happen. But the um, biggest issue is that there are different there are different standards for states, and I think that's the real message that this book is trying to share. Page 94. The problem with instructing the jury to examine the state's evidence for doubt, but instead use the term search for truth, of what they think really happened is that it lowers the burden of proof, the constitutionally guaranteed reasonable doubt standard. That is, it sends the burden of proof careening back to a more likely than not standard that is used in civil cases. As one federal court observed, seeking the truth suggests determining whose version of the events is more likely true, the government's or the defendant's, and thereby intimates the preponderance of the evidence standard. In other words, if a jury feels like the government's version of events is only slightly more likely than defendants, in numeric terms, 50.1% of the evidence, it would follow in a search for truth, the jury would be obligated to convict. And I think this is going on for a while, but you can get the idea. He says that the low standard that has been employed by the bizarre law in Wisconsin, it's just that it's allowing for people to interpret the evidence in a weaker way. And they have this um, search for truth is one of the ways that it can be phrased. And it says it very clearly here. After defining reasonable doubt, Wisconsin courts strangely conclude their jury instruction by telling the jury to brush aside any such doubts. More specifically, Wisconsin standard jury instruction concludes, you are not here to search for doubt. You are here to search for the truth. And they have every right to do this, as you heard, um, because of um, the, the, the phraseology has not been determined for every state. But... I mean, even in, on the next page here, on page 95, Ciccini says, defense lawyers in Wisconsin have frequently objected to this bizarre burden-lowering burden lowering jury instruction, but I've always wondered that, because it's not only with the um, story of Stephen Avery, it's also with his nephew, Brendan Dassey, who was convicted as well for being an active participant in the murder of Teresa Hallback, and the prosecution created this whole timeline about how they thought that 
Stephen Avery was sexually assaulting Teresa Hallback, and Brendan Dassey was coming home and he found a letter for Stephen Avery, so he went to Avery's trailer, more or less for lack of a better term, Avery's residence, and he walked in and saw what was happening, and that Brendan Dassey joined in as an active participant in the sexual assault on Teresa Hallback, and then her body was um, not only um, transported, but also mutilated and relocated to the burn pit on the Avery property. Now, I don't mean to go into some other sources, but Kathleen Zellner, the attorney for Stephen Avery, has heavily disputed that by saying that the burn pit was not a suitable place for the remains to have been charred because they would have looked very differently, and they had the ultimate burn expert in the world talking about this as one of their uh, experts, and they suggested rather that Teresa Hallback's body was burned in something such as a barrel, perhaps, and that her remains were then scattered on the Avery property. But I would like to go back to this section of the book because, much like Jerry Buting's Illusion of Justice, the book really heats up in the middle section. What I think I said around page 170 for Illusion of Justice, the real valuable parts of the book kicked in, and I wasn't the biggest fan of Jerry Buting's book, but there are 10 pages, I think it's 170 to 180, where the whole book is worth it, because he laid out an amazingly clear narrative, and an amazingly strong narrative on how Brendan Dassey should not have been convicted for the Holback murder in 2005. That's Brendan Dassey, the nephew, not Stephen Avery. This book here gets into its own about page 90, or it goes to a different level, because it's talking about how, more or less, the only reason why Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey were convicted and are still in jail to this day is because Wisconsin has this weird law, or weird opportunities to phrase reasonable doubt as a search for the truth. And they talk about this, though, like, how much does that that label, searching for the truth, affect jury's selection. Let's read page 96. Lawrence White and I decided to test whether Wisconsin's truth-related language lowers the burden of proof, or as the government contends, does not have any effect on juror decision-making. To test our hypothesis, we recruited 298 participants to serve as mock jurors in a controlled study. Each juror then read identical case summaries of a hypothetical criminal trial. The case summary included the elements of the charged crime, a summary of the witness testimony, and the closing arguments of the lawyers. Jurors were then randomly assigned to three groups, and each one was receiving a different jury instruction on the state's burden of proof. A different jury instruction on the state's burden of proof. Goodness gracious, I just said that. Group A received a very short burden of proof instruction and was simply told to search for the truth. That's group A, right? This group convicted at a rate of 29.6%. Group B received a legally proper reasonable doubt instruction, and that concluded with the mandate that they should give the defendant every benefit of the reasonable doubt. This group convicted at a rate of 16%. Finally, Group C received Wisconsin's standard jury instruction for which defines reasonable doubt and... They were told not to search for doubt, but instead search for the truth. And they were also at 29%. So that might seem like it's 
not the biggest number in the world, but third, but 16% to 29%, that's almost doubling, meaning that, okay, that one study doesn't prove everything, one testing group doesn't prove everything, but it goes to show you how people think. It goes to show you how people think en masse, and that it is almost twice as likely that somebody is going to be convicted if they phrase reasonable doubt in this particular way. Give him all the benefits of the doubt instead of search for the truth. Meaning that if they do that and they don't have a standard for doing that, then people are going to be more likely to be convicted from the get-go. This, this book really does have some good things. I will give it to uh, Ciccini for that one. But um, there are many other uh, things to explore here in the book Convicting Avery. But already you've heard some things about how he makes a very solid case for um, the evidence planting, which I was not the biggest fan of, but I was a much bigger fan of talking about the phraseology of reasonable doubt. I think that one is way more convincing. Jumping ahead to page 103, regardless of the location, the burning question is, where is Teresa Holbach's blood? The state's explanation is that Stephen Avery is a mad genius and a highly skilled forensic scientist, the same man who was dumb enough to park Holbach's car on a ridge on the very edge of his property. The one place where it would surely be discovered was also smart enough to eliminate Teresa Holbach's blood and all traces of DNA from the trailer and the garage. Of course, this is not possible. First, no one would simultaneously be that stupid and be that brilliant. This is the stuff in the book, though, that I do not like. Like, okay, you're just going to share the findings that you had in that um, test group of 298 people. Bring it on. I mean, tell us your findings. And even if, you know, it's not some type of hard science, that's what you discovered. And it's clear as day to me that the stuff about phrasing reasonable doubt. But this whole thing here about that the, um, that firstly, no one can be this dumb or be this stupid at the same time, and that the, uh, crime had to have been committed a certain way. I do not accept that at all. I would challenge this guy, Ciccini, to watch 10 seasons of Forensic Files. Heck, he could probably watch 20 seasons of Forensic Files. Maybe he can just watch one season of Forensic Files, and he's going to encounter a lot of criminals who do what? Really smart things and really dumb things. And this happens all the time. Someone will plan this extravagant way of committing a crime, and then they're going to do something ridiculously stupid. Other people are very intelligent, and they have occupations like they're doctors, maybe lawyers themselves even, or they're scientists, and then they commit a murder in a very sloppy way. And if I ever do um, something more extensive on true crime psychology, I would like to talk about how perhaps that is because they want to get caught, they want to get arrested, because they, they hate their lives and they want to be pulled out of their own misery, even if it means going to jail. They just want some type of change, and they do uh, in a very unjust and illegal way where someone gets murdered for it, but I don't really hear too many people talking about that, but that's one of my own original observations about the true crime world. So, just to say that no one would ever do that, I mean, how do you mean no one would ever do that? Have you examined every person under the sun or in the darkness? No, I do not believe you have. 
Hutchishini, I love most of your book, but these are the parts where I do take exception to, saying that um, no one would commit a crime this way. I can follow the narrative that Teresa Holbach's car was parked on Stephen Avery's property as a distraction by an, by a different perpetrator, and that that was just some place that could be used more or less as a dump site. They know it's going to be discovered, but they didn't care. They're already miles away, and it's just a big distraction. Oh, I can follow that. But to say that it's impossible that someone is going to be very smart to destroy some forensic evidence, but very dumb to leave a big piece of forensic evidence behind, it happens frequently in the true crime world. If you don't want forensic files, you can watch Dateline, 48 Hours. Or how about this? You can read other true crime books or read the case file documents. This stuff happens all the time. People will commit smart murders that have a dumb, dumb ending to them. And even if somebody is intelligent, murder is completely wrong, completely immoral. And I just want to be very clear about that. Even if it has received a certain amount of planning, these people are all terrible who commit murder. And I would also like to go to page 106 in the book that talks about some uh, of the final notes for this episode. Not surprisingly, the sheriffs reacted to a tremendous burden by going into denial mode. At least two high-ranking officials within the department, Ken Peterson and Gene Cush, questioned Avery's DNA exoneration and maintained that Avery might still, after all, be guilty of the Bernstein rape. Absolutely shocking. They also believed beyond any doubt that he was guilty of the Hallback murder, and if their belief was true, that it would solve a lot of the department's problems. First of all, it was a practical matter. If Avery had murdered Hallback, it would have been a death blow to his civil lawsuit against the sheriff's department. Second, murdering Teresa Hallback would get many people thinking that despite his earlier DNA exoneration, maybe the sheriffs were right. Avery might have been Bernstein's attacker at all. And third, and the very least... Everyone would be thinking about what one politician, Mark Gundrum, said aloud. And then you start thinking to yourself, boy, maybe it was good that he was in there all that time, as unjust that it, as it was. If he did the Hallback murder, what might have he done during that time? So, I do have some exceptions to this part as well. Number one is that Stephen Avery would not have committed the crime after being exonerated. I think that that's the case that the prosecution is really trying to make by saying, or the, I mean, it's a contrary statement. It's a counter-argument to the case. They're tr by saying that Stephen Avery was exonerated in 2003. He's let out of jail, and their claim is he thought that he was untouchable, that he got out for, he got out of prison and he's not going back, so he could do whatever he wanted, no matter how illegal or sinister it was. He could attack a woman, murder her, burn her remains, scatter them in the burn pit on his own property because he thought he wasn't getting caught. No one's going to suspect him. He just got out of jail. Why would he want to go back? And just he was in that category of blamelessness. That's what they've said. But notice... Both of these sides are just passionately making assumptions, and knowingly making assumptions, and painfully making assumptions that, oh yeah, well, he, he, he wouldn't have committed the crime because he didn't want to get punished for it. I, I can't accept that. And that's a real section in the book that I thought was very hard 
to challenge because, oh, no, he's not going to commit murder because it's going to make him look bad. Again, I just can't accept that, that that is any type of real defense. It's just too uh, simple. According to the documentary, many employees of the Manitowoc County Sheriff's Department therefore had a motive to pin the Hallback murder on Stephen Avery. Even those in charge of the Hallback investigation knew this. During a press conference, they acknowledged that the conflict, or at least appearance of a conflict, and promised that the Manitowoc County Sheriff's Office would only play a limited supporting role in the investigation. This, however, was unfulfilled. And if any doubts about the Manitowoc County Sheriff still lingered, those were soon put to rest. The documentary showed television footage of Ken Peterson, the top dog in the police department, talking about Avery. In an incredibly eerie and unsettling interview, he publicly discussed both hypothetically framing and hypothetically killing Stephen Avery. Killing Avery, he insisted, would have been easier, and the sheriffs would have preferred that option to framing him. Therefore, his argument continued that the sheriffs were not guilty of framing him, but a compelling and confidence-inspiring statement from a public official. So, I think that that's where we're going to have to leave it for the book discussion, but that's just not convincing either. I mean, this book talks about how a lot of people are leading with their emotions. A lot of people are trying to figure out the truth based on their emotions. And then there are people like the lawyers and the police officers and the sheriff who are trying to manipulate people's emotions. And that is all I'm seeing on both sides. Oh, the book really might pick up on pages um, 90 to 100. And then from pages 100 to 110, it's just going off in this... um in this world of assumptions and you know this is true actually i was reading this book and i was sitting on a bench and some guy came by and he said how's the book and i said so so it has its ups and downs and i began to think what i truly should have said was how's the book he asked me i should have said so so it's filled with assumptions and most of the book is great and with michael d Ciccini's writing I really think that there's a particular flow to it. Some of you may have even caught on to that. It feels like the writer is actually talking to you. That's good. It's nice to read a true crime book that isn't amazingly dense. But also, I don't really buy into this whole narrative of no one would ever behave like that under these circumstances. I mean, come on, guys, right? That stuff, unacceptable. But what do you think about the murder of Stephen Avery in the 2005 Goodness gracious. What do you think about Stephen Avery and the 2005 murder of Teresa Hallback? No, Stephen Avery was not murdered. I misspoke at the end of the episode. At least it wasn't at the beginning. And you can share anything you want about this story. Do you believe that Stephen Avery was guilty? Do you believe that Brendan Dassey was guilty? Or do you think that there were alternative suspects who make better, better profile cases for being the murderer of Teresa Hallback? And you can always share anything you want in the comment section down below. If there's another uh, piece of literature or an article or another TV show about making a murderer in the story of Stephen Avery and the murder of Theresa Hallback, please feel free to put your ideas in the comment section down below. Anything is welcome. All is appreciated. Share anything you want, and I will talk to you guys in the comment section. Anybody can write the show at blackboxonlineradio.com. You can also get me on Facebook. My personal Facebook is in the description box. And there was always BlackBoxNid88 over on Instagram for the bonus podcast. 
until next time.